Welcome to Launch Left, an intentional space for art and activism, a podcast, a label, a launchpad for left-of-center artists. Our guest today is Katie Melua. Please welcome her to the show. But first, don't forget to rate and subscribe. Follow us on all socials at Launch Left. Hey. Is that you? Hi. Rain, nice to meet you. Pleasure and an honor. Am I uh, talking to you from the UK right now? Yeah, I'm in London at the moment. This is where I live. Oh, wonderful. Is it is it uh, sunny there or is it gloomy as per usual? Yeah, actually, today it's been glorious. It's so nice to speak with you. I was listening to your record all night. You spent uh, a lot of time making it or you were very thoughtful about how you made it. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it, it took about four years. And it was, um, the thing is, it never gets easier making records, right? It just doesn't. and. Um, you just sort of also the older you get, you try and really find need to find the sort of justification for it. You know, the amount of time that it needs. I'm also, I can be my own worst enemy and I'm so tough with myself. And I just think quality is really important and you have to work so hard. And I always think, okay, every time I make a new record, the listener has the chance to listen to, a Dylan record or a Frank Sinatra record or a Joni Mitchell record. So this new work needs to compete at that level, which is a terrible thing to be thinking as, as you embark, you know, on songwriting or going into the studio. But I think it is important and I still love the challenge of it. And I find it utterly fascinating. And I find, you know, so many people talk about the evils of our industry, but I don't know, the people that I've worked with, I've been very lucky to meet some of the most talented and good-hearted people. And um, and to go on this sort of trip with them has been incredible. Yeah, you can tell that everyone that was involved in the record spent, uh, cared very deeply about it. Everyone involved is galvanized to help lift up the artist um, that they're representing and to bring it to life. And I think that you did such a great job and all, all your collaborators as well. Uh, the fact that you used a whole symphony orchestra is, is no small feat either. What was that like? Oh, it's crazy. I mean, the thing is, I'm a very lucky girl. I started making music, you know, make, I made my first record when I was 19. And from the very first record, I got put into a studio with brilliant musicians, some of the best UK studio musicians. Um, back then, I was working with a producer and songwriter called Mike Bat, and he was quite a traditionalist. So he really put me in the heart of like this British music making scene. And he was also a great arranger. So from album number one, we always had orchestras. So in a way, like I've been really spoiled <laughs> and I'm the first to kind of admit it and realize like what a privilege that has been. But I don't know. I mean, on this record, there was something so magical about these arrangements. They have this beautiful kind of lightness and delicacy while still being very rhythmical and incredibly moving. We actually went to record them in Georgia in my home country, um, which is where I was born. And my whole family moved over to the UK when I was eight years old. 
but the studio where we recorded the orchestra is this brilliant wooden clad huge room that used to be the soundtrack recording studio for all the Soviet films. And now it's been turned into this great music studio and this Georgian Philharmonic Orchestra were just amazing because they have a very sort of passionate way of playing. And then mixed with Leo Abrahams, our producer, who arranged the strings with his work, which, and he's a typical Englishman. So there is this sort of um, subtlety and reserve, you know, and, and a really sort of bullseye way of working, you know, quite exacting. And um, yeah, I think it creates a really interesting, interesting work. Uh, now that we've talked a little bit about the record, I'm I'm curious. You say you made your first record at 19, but how how did music find you? Like as a child, when was the first memory you have of music, and and how did it touch you and and move you? Okay, so being born in Georgia in 1984, which is you know as many people know, Georgia on the um, Black Sea coast, surrounded by the Caucasian Mountains, in the far far eastern part of Europe. Um, and Georgia used to be part of the Soviet Union. So by the time I was about six, seven years old, the Soviet Union was collapsing. And between the 1991 years to about 94, Georgia was really devastated, infrastructurally speaking, which meant that um, we had major issues with electricity and hot water. And I'll get to how this relates to music. Um, I remember being, so I would have been seven or maybe even a little bit earlier and the lights would go out um, and we'd be sort of, you know, living with candlelight basically. And my mom played the piano a little bit. So she'd sit at the piano and she'd play. And I often think about the fact that I, I mean, I listened to those sort of beautiful pieces like Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, which was the first piece that completely blew my mind. And it would have been in darkness and I would have been very young. And I just remember thinking like, it felt so um, powerful, something that I couldn't see, something that I couldn't touch, that it was just like literally going inside me. You know, and I was a kid and I was just incredibly aware of this sort of atmospheric change that this you know, this piece of music was able to achieve. And then the other thing that would happen was we would get about an hour each day when the electricity would come on. And during that hour, my uncles, because in Georgia, everyone lived, you know, in their big families, people didn't really live, you know, separately too much. Um, during that one hour, they would rush to their cassette players and they would put on Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, Queen. You know, so there I kind of heard all this Western music and, you know, and I could see their sort of like excitement at being able to put that on for that one hour that the electricity worked. And I think it just, yeah, it kind of instilled a sort of a sense of, um, you know, the importance of music, the importance of great records, you know, um, and I'm just so honoured to still be working in the field. Yeah, it's it's that's an interesting combo, Beethoven and Led Zeppelin. I love that. I love the hybrid for sure. It's yeah, uh, the, the was, arrangements were just gorgeous. You know, we say all this, but I also feel that I make pop records. You know, I mean, not pop in the sense of 
but it is pop records. But I just feel that even records that is for everyone, like it isn't, this isn't a record for a niche group. You know, it's not a subculture that this record is for. It's for everyone. It's for, you know, anyone that might be into good music. I really believe we shouldn't be afraid of sophistication, even in that sort of mainstream space. Um, I think people can take it. They definitely can. And I think it's interesting to see how far we can go with that um, and how much we can create this sort of invisible architecture when someone listens to a piece of work and how much it can soothe them, it can inspire them, it can even transform them, you know, because I believe great art has the capability of doing that. Yeah, and I think, you know, you touched on something I think is is really important, which is that, you know, good pop music does all those things. It doesn't really matter the genre. The most important thing is knowing that the artist is free to make decisions not based on the bottom line or dollars or a sort of formula, but more coming from the heart of, of what they need to express. And that's something that's very clear with your music. You make such a really a really good point. I mean, the fact of having that type of pressure is something I've actually experienced myself. You know, so when I first started, and I t- and I will tell this story without any judgment because actually I benefited from it massively. You know, my first record company and my first manager was a phenomenal and is a phenomenal songwriter, um, but there was always pressure in the system to to sell, to get to the top of the charts. You know, it was just sort of, it just seemed to be so natural to him, you know, that, well, of course, you know, um, the definition of success is that we sell as many records and we get to the top of the charts. And I just thought that was the case. I mean, I was 19, so I kind of thought, okay, this is the case throughout the whole industry. And I, you know, and I kind of accepted it being a young kid. and I benefited from it massively because in Europe, those early records that I made sold really, really well. But it just isn't sustainable, you know, and that is the issue. Like, I definitely burnt out after, you know, four records of turning them around really quickly. And then I was lucky enough six years ago to meet with a team, a really great management team called ATC Management, who are based here in London. and yeah, they really stand behind this philosophy of it's really the artist that has to set the agenda and also the pace of work. Um, I mean, I believe in discipline and I believe in um, a consistent output of work, but, you know, you can't force it and you have to take account of being a human being, <laughs> you know, and, and making sure you live enough to sort of observe and and take life in and, you know, and make truthful observations. Because all that's the stuff that's really important for, for great music, I think. You say you burned out after the first four, kind of, it was like a machine, you were in a machine for a while. Can you walk us through sort of for you, how you gained back your own autonomy as an artist? You know what, it wasn't completely black and white. Um, I came out of the burnout just frankly, being so grateful to be alive. You know, I was just so happy to be able to um, walk the streets, you know, as a healthy human being and, uh, and to not have paranoid thoughts. And, you know, and also 
the burnout, it wasn't super clear to me if it was just to do with work. I mean, I've, I've always been a huge perfectionist. And so that can mean that you're your own worst enemy. Um, there was also some things at home. I mean, I'm a big family girl. So I think just touring the amount that I was touring and, and the promo schedules that I was on in my 20s meant that I was away from my family. You know, and I'd grown up with, you know, like I said before, my uncles and my grandparents. So there was a few things that kind of didn't go my way. Um, but I think it was coming out of that burnout and just going, oh man, it's so good to be alive. And let's just not even think about records or being an artist or any of that. Like, you know, just the beauty of, of you know, having a healthy mind and a healthy body. Um, so it made me very appreciative of that. And then just gradually over the years, um, I realized how much music means to me. You know, and I never, ever thought about leaving the game. I never did. And to be honest, you know, me and, you know, Mike Batt, who was my producer and manager in the early days, we made two more records, you know, and they're two beautiful records. And I, I think of that time as probably the greatest mentorship that I could have ever asked for. Because, you know, I think you have to sort of experiment as a young artist, you know. I mean, Mike had 30 plus experience on me, you know, so in terms of a creative dynamic, there's no way you can sort of argue with that. And also I'm someone that really respects my elders. Um, and that meant, you know, I really respected, you know, what he was bringing to the table. So what I'm trying to say, it wasn't, it wasn't quite a, a sort of a black and white story of, you know, I was oppressed as an artist or anything like that. I was very grateful for the, those experiences. And even for the burnout, because it taught me to respect myself and and to, you know, really measure my energies. And you say you kind of yearned for your family, your family gal. How many siblings? Do you have siblings or is it a big family? Or Well, it's a big family because, you know, back in Georgia, we used to live with my grandparents and my uncles. But um, in terms of my immediate family, it's me and my little brother. And he's seven years younger than me. And he is a musician too, and he's in my band. And he really, actually, as a as a young musician, he really pushes me because his discipline is also off the charts. <laughs> Sounds like you, you, yeah, you both have a lot of discipline. Which you know, I think if you're gifted, great. But the the doing it every day and being disciplined and really believing in what you're doing and working hard to perfect it, even though nothing is perfect, but to like have your eye on the prize of whatever you want to manifest, getting it to that place and not falling short takes discipline. I loved your quote about, you know, the success of the record was in the finishing of it for you. Uh, and I think that's so important for artists to, to have that be the barometer and the marker of success. Do you know? Well, I think we can all decide what our own success is. I mean, especially now, because it's not as clear cut as it once was, you know, what it means to be successful. Um, hey, I mean, you know, having some commercial success is always welcome. Like, I can't possibly frown upon it. But, 
But yeah, the discipline was essential for me, particularly in a specific field with this record, which was lyric writing. And this was an area that I always felt a great deal of mysticism around. You know, a lot of the artists that I look up to, like Joni Mitchell or Bob Dylan, who I really revere, um, but, you know, you, you don't get to see a huge deal about how, you know, their process works. And, you know, and I do like that, but I felt like I really needed to figure out some of the techniques that I was lacking in lyric writing. And this was, this started for me about four years ago. So it started with me thinking, okay, well, where can I go and learn about lyric writing? It seemed like in the field of hip hop and rap, there was a lot more confidence with words, with the use of words. But in the field that I, you know, the genre that I'm in, which is sort of classic inspired folk, um, blues, jazz based pop songs, there seems to be a sort of a, a gap there. And, um, and basically, yeah, I went out and did everything I possibly could to research, to study, to practice. And it was amazing to see it pay off. But there's something else I would like to add, which is that, um, you know, I think discipline is so good, but you also need to sort of observe yourself, you know, and you have to make it exciting for yourself. And sometimes people do end up um, tiring themselves out after years and years of, of doing it, you know, and losing that spark for it. And I'm really interested in kind of keeping that flame and spark and that inner motivation alive for what we do. I am curious if you have any current artists or, or even, um, yeah, they don't even have to have uh, lyrics. They could be, it could be classical, but anyone currently or jazz that you're listening to that's been an inspiration to you? I'm, a, I'm really obsessed with Brad Muldow, the jazz pianist. I think he's just phenomenal. In fact, the last show I went to see before lockdown was the 13th of March, his show here in London. And, uh, and I okay. also... Have- the day of lockdown. Yeah, that was the last, that was my last gig. Um, then I had tickets also for his July dates. He was coming back into town with Brian Blade and it was going to be an incredible show. But of course, you know, these dates are gone. I'm also a huge fan of Phoebe Bridges. I think she's amazing. I think Laura Marling is also really incredible. And I have been obsessing over Gillian Welsh over the last few weeks. Those are, those are great artists to talk about, and I couldn't agree more, really. I don't know the jazz pianist you mentioned, but other than that, I... He's got I a, a very special record called Highway Rider, which is one of my favorites of all time. And, um, yeah, I would check that one out. I think, uh, I think you and maybe a lot of the listeners would enjoy that one. I would love to ask you, what is your form of activism? Like what gets you going in terms of give back? To me, I I try and, you know, I don't assume that just because I'm an artist and I have an audience for my music that people are necessarily going to sort of do what I say. So I think, I always think I have to be very careful and sensible about, you know, shouting about political topics. Um, so I try and do things based on just my own actions. So for example, the environment is something that, well, I mean, we should all deeply care about it. And, you know, we'd all be completely screwed if if things continue the way they are. 
So I try and recycle as much as I can. We had a big tour planned at the end of this year and we were actually teaming up with a sustainable company that was going to help us make the tour as eco-friendly as it possibly could be. Um, and yeah, and I just try and I talk about that as much as I can because, well, yeah, it's just essential. You know, I love the planet. But the other thing I also want to say, Rain, is that um, coming from Georgia in the 90s where, you know, there was a civil war there and the country was so devastated. And when I moved over to the West and when I moved to the UK, there were certain things that were okay here, which was I was able to get an education. I was able to turn the tap on and hot water would come out of it you know, the electricity was always on and basically everything was available in the shops and, and, you know, my dad's a doctor. So we were able to, you know, live freely here in the West, which actually gave me a very optimistic view of life. And it kind of, it's like the framework I had for life was what I'd seen in Georgia, where as a kid of six and seven, when I would go to school, in Georgia, it would have to close at winter time because it was too cold. So I kind of experienced this sort of very strange um, time in my childhood where I really got to see things quite badly. And then I moved to the West and I just thought, wow, you know, like life is good. And so, you know, I tried to really just pause at positives rather than pausing at, you know, what I think is is wrong with the world. And and even, I even marvel at, like here in the UK, there is the most astonishing charity sector. You know, so when you hear these tragic stories of famines or wars, I marvel at the fact that we hear those stories. You know, so the positive is there are so many people working so hard to fix these issues. And it kind of, well, essentially it it puts me in a better mood than than I would be if I was focused on the on just the problem, um, and I find that that just helps me navigate life a bit better, um, you know, without being you know com- completely sort of uh, deluded. But uh, it, I find it's important to watch your state, you know, and how you feel internally. Yeah, well, I totally agree with that. I mean, we create you know, our own reality. And yes, the, the, the sort of collective reality can be very disturbing at times and, and can be very upsetting. But what we do with it is, is the sort of litmus test of how to move forward. If you become paralyzed by what surrounds you that is really intense and at times depressing, then you lose sight of what you can do, right? And so that's really powerful. And it sounds like you're a solutionist, which I'm always advocating for. It's like not focusing on the problem, but focusing on trying to find solutions and being available to those. That's really wonderful. Um, It sounds like you were raised right. I have been raised by the most amazing culture. You know, my, my parents are incredible. My dad's a doctor. My mum has been the most majestic mum I could have ever wished for. And then Georgian culture is is so, it really embraces people so much and there's so much warmth and there's so much pride about being, just being alive and being humans. So, um, yeah. yeah. And I just also think 
you know, we can't lose faith in the human spirit. Like, for example, I was on YouTube yesterday and I came across um, this really sweet video. And it was one of these videos that's had something like a gazillion million views. And there was a couple of really horrible comments in the comment section. And they were really, truly awful. Like you just wouldn't, you wouldn't want to repeat it. And I thought, man, like this is just terrible. But then the number of reactions that were just laying into this person who had said this vile thing was remarkable. Literally, you know, it was something like 99.9% was, you know, telling this, this person to just, you know, go away and kind of grow up. And, uh, and yeah, it kind of, it still made me feel good about humankind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think inside all of us is a spark of our true nature and that true nature is good and is compassionate and does care. And even those who've kind of gone astray and don't realize it, they have that spark in them. And so, um, you know, being compassionate towards them is the hardest thing, but it's also the thing that could potentially bend them back to their truth too. have compassion for them except that they've said or done something horrible and still, you know, keep going and, and still be a good example, still use your light to do something um, transformative that might even change their mind, you know? Um, and of course, it's not easy, you know. No. It's, those are the hardest things in life. The hardest. Really, and also, you know, I mean, I think changing people, that's a really difficult notion. But I, I sometimes think that relationships become set. And so it can be very difficult to, to um, you know, change someone in a relationship, but they might have the capacity to change, or you might, you know, in a separate and a different context. Um, also, I just wanted to mention, you know, when you talked about being raised well, like I'm a, I'm a huge reader, um, which probably doesn't come as a big surprise. You know, I think reading and great literature is is essential to the forming of every single human being. And there's one thing that happened to me when I first moved over to the UK, I was turning nine years old and back in Georgia, I'd never actually been in a library because, you know, the country was kind of too poor to have libraries and you didn't really get to go to any. Um, but in Belfast, which was where, where I first went to school, I actually went into the school library and was blown away when I could take away six books you know in the fact that I didn't have to give anyone money for taking something away and that I was trusted as an eight-year-old to you know return these books was completely mesmerizing for me and one of the reasons why it's an honor for me as a Georgian girl raised in England to be talking to you to be talking to Americans is my ultimate favorite writer is Flannery O'Connor the southern um American Gothic writer. A good just, man is hard to find. Yes. <laughs> just, and her writing about writing is so tough and it's so great. And um, yeah, and you know, like that's what I just, you know, to, for a culture to create a writer like Flannery O'Connor is really majestic. So yeah, it's, it's just great to be talking to you. Uh, you too. Well, is there anything else you'd like to share? What are your next steps? I mean, you're putting out a record during quarantine. Obviously, there's no touring this year. I would, uh, well, as soon as we're allowed to travel, I would love to get to America. I'd actually love to visit the Flannery O'Connor estate. I'd like to visit some of the places where she grew up. 
Um, I want to keep working on my writing. I think songs are just so majestic, you know, and I think the tradition of them is both so old, but also the art of record making, I think is really new. And I'm just really interested in experimenting with it and continuing to work with it. And, um, and yeah, and, and hope uh, people will come along for that ride. Oh, wonderful. I hope you do get to make it over here and I get to see you sing. And I will say your voice is spectacular, but I will also say that the um, capture of your voice on this record, the sound, whatever, whatever uh, vocal sound, whoever was producing it, it's so uh, intimate and personal and you can like feel it resonate in your heart. This record was produced by Leah Abrahams and Leah also arranged the strings. And it was amazing when I, I mean, Leo is known as one of the greatest guitarists in the UK. He actually, his mentor is Brian Eno. So he comes from a very interesting tradition himself. When we first met, and I have to say, it was really difficult to find the right type of producer or, or the right person. I mean, as you know, Rain, the producer's job is quite undefined in our industry. So you you sort of have to meet the person and then you kind of have to figure out what your philosophies are. Um, and Leo, when we first met, he said to me, you know, my, my idea about being a producer is that my job is to bring to life the artist's vision. And, you know, that was, it's just amazing to hear. But also I really believe in giving the team as much freedom and as much sort of, you know, as much of a good atmosphere as possible. Um, and so I know when we're in the studio, we can really sort of fight against the technology, you know, because we're sort of very much at its mercy, but I'm someone that believes in the magic of it. Like, I think the, you know, the modern music studio, the capabilities that it has to record sounds, to capture the air and, you know, those moments in time are really something. And so I, I kind of, while being a huge traditionalist, I'm also a big fan of and a big geek in the studio. So, um, and that's something that we always try and bring out with whoever we're working with. And, and Leo was just the most, you know, the best partner I could have asked for in the studio. Well, you can tell. Really beautiful record. Thank you so much for sharing um, the inside scoop on it and also just about your life and music and art and we really appreciate having you on the show thank you so much hello launch left listeners this is katie melua and this is my new song maybe i dreamt it took my heart and lifted it to the stars the sky said the winds had brought you here maybe I dreamt it took my heart and lifted it to the wild to the free said if they Anything you need Maybe I dreamt it You showed me free 
create an intentional space that highlights and empowers all artists for whom radical creativity is not a choice but a necessity. Launch Left begins with music, but its ultimate aim is to launch left-of-center artists in all creative fields. 